Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message, that it draws you closer to Jesus and helps you become more like Him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's Son to be revealed. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, because not only that, but we ourselves who have the spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves eagerly, waiting for adoption the redemption of our bodies. For now in this hope we were saved. For now in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is not hope, because who hopes for what he sees? Now if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Thank you. There is this, uh, there's this funny line in the Gospel of Luke. You thought I was going to say a movie, didn't you? No. In the Gospel of Luke, there's this funny line. Jesus is uh, traveling to Jerusalem. It's toward the end of his life. And Jesus is, uh, has gone from Galilee, where he lives, up north of Jerusalem. He's traveled down the Jordan River, and he's now entering into Jerusalem from the east. So he's approaching the eastern gate of Jerusalem that'll take him right into the temple courts, the temple of God. And as he's doing this, there are people lined up on either side of the road, people who have traveled with him from Galilee, some local folks who know who he is, have gathered together and they're, they're lining either side of the road and they're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And some people approach Jesus and they go, Jesus, would you shut them up? I mean, that's, that's not literally what they said, but, but essentially that's the idea. Like the, these people are making a ton of noise and the, the, uh, the kind of religious leaders, the, the authorities there don't want these people making so much noise and, and shouting praise to Jesus. And so they ask Jesus to shut his followers up, make them be quiet, they say. And Jesus looks at these leaders, and it's only in Luke that they record, he records this line. Jesus looks at the authorities, and he says, if they shut up, then the rocks would cry out in praise. And you ever thought about that? Like, is that just a figure of speech? What, what does that even mean? Like, does Jesus believe rocks can actually talk? When I picture this, I picture that, that big rock monster from the never-ending story. Do you, do you know this the never-ending story, right? There's this monstrous rock eater, right? And that's kind of what I picture is him like, praise Jesus. Jesus, I don't know if Jesus believes that rocks can actually talk, but he is making a point right there. Jesus is making a very profound point. And because it's only one line in one gospel, and because it's kind of funny and silly, we might miss that point. But I think Jesus is making the profound point that even the earth knows its king. Even the earth knows when its God shows up. People may not realize it. People may not recognize Jesus. People have the option to reject him, but the earth does not. 
When God shows up in the flesh, when Jesus shows up as the king of the world, even the ground knows who's walking on it. Even the earth understands that its redemption is at hand. Jesus makes that point with one simple line in the Gospel of Luke. Paul makes that point here in the passage we've just read. You may have been listening to that and thinking, what does this have to do with Christmas? What does this have to do with Advent at all? But Paul's making the same point here in Romans 8 that Jesus made in that one line when he said, if they shut up and stop praising me, even the rocks would cry out in worship of their king. Even the earth recognizes when its redemption is at hand. Maybe you've never thought of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, as incorporating the very earth on which we walk. But when Jesus comes and offers redemption, it's not just freedom from sins for his people. It's not just individual freedom from sins for us in our own hearts. It's freedom from all that our sin has done, all the damage that human sin has ever done over the course of its existence. When Jesus comes, he offers full redemption, full resurrection, not only for humanity, but for the earth as well. The earth recognizes its king. And so here in Romans 8, Paul makes the same point. The apostle here is is writing to these believers in Rome, and they've been suffering. The believers in Rome, the followers of Jesus in Rome, they live in a really scary place. They live in the heart of the Roman Empire. They live in the shadow of the capital of the Roman Empire. They live in the shadow of the emperor himself. And not too many years from the writing of this very letter, we would see the great persecution of the church in Rome under the emperor Nero, one of the most evil men to ever walk the earth. And so this is they're experiencing, the church in Rome right now is experiencing the buildup to what will become this great persecution under the Emperor Nero, the time when Paul himself will die in just a few years from now. Paul's never been to Rome at this point. He's never been to visit the church in Rome, I should say. And so he's writing to them having never met these people, but he understands what they're dealing with. And he sympathizes with them in their suffering and pain because Paul himself has been arrested, he's been beaten, he's been tried, he's gone through all kinds of of suffering and torment in his own ministry, in his own life, so he can, he can sympathize with these people. And Paul knows he's a Roman citizen, so he gets special treatment from the empire. Not all of these believers in Rome are Roman citizens. So they've got it maybe even worse than he does. So when he begins this passage right here, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us, He's writing from a place of true understanding. He's not writing from a place of privilege where he's never experienced the kind of suffering that these Roman Christians are. He's walked through these fires too. He's been there with them. They understand that Paul is not just, this is not some empty, vacuous thing when someone puts their arm around you and says, it's all going to be okay after you've been through some tragedy they couldn't possibly understand. We've all been there, right? We've all been through the the place where, where we've gone through something that is just so unique, so painful, so earth-shattering and foundation-crashing that when our friends come around and they try to comfort us, it feels kind of empty. Yeah, we appreciate the effort. We appreciate 
the sentiment, but really they can't possibly understand what we've experienced. We've all felt that kind of vacuous, empty comfort that comes from people who can't really say they've walked in your shoes before. But that's not Paul here. When Paul says, I understand your suffering, and that I think the sufferings of this age are nothing in comparison with what's coming, these Roman Christians can hold on to that. They can believe it. They can hold tight to it. And so Paul's walking with people who are suffering in this life, and he's saying, it's nothing compared to what's coming. If we can endure, if we can make it through, if we can persevere, then what is on the other end of this is so glorious, so beautiful, that it will make all of this pain we feel right now into nothing. It will redeem everything we have gone through. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, when, when we reach the end of our life and we reach our eternal destiny, whether that's heaven or hell, we will find that if we are in heaven, it was heaven all the way from the beginning. And if we are in hell, it was hell all the way from the beginning. That our eternal destiny will work backward to either redeem or to make hellacious everything we've ever endured in our lives. And I think he's right. I think that's what Paul is pointing to here. He's saying, look, when you finally stand face to face with Jesus, it will make everything you ever endured in your life into nothing. The sufferings of this present age hold nothing compared to the glory that is to come. And then he takes a switch He starts there with the people suffering, and then he kind of moves beyond just us to this 30,000-foot view, and now he's talking about creation itself. Because Paul wants the people to know the suffering you're enduring is not just individual to you. In fact, the entire world has felt this suffering. And not just humanity, but the creation itself has felt the suffering that you're feeling. The very ground you walk on has felt the suffering that you feel. If you remember back in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve are in the garden. The first man and woman are in the garden of Eden. It's this perfect paradise. They don't have to work for anything really. Their work is to expand the garden. God sets them in this garden. It has certain boundaries. The rest of the world is chaotic. And God says to them, hey, I want you to take this garden and I want you to spread it over the cross of the face of the earth. That's their job. That's their work. Only when they sin, when they disobey God and they eat from the fruit of the tree that God has told them not to eat from, then even the garden is subjected to their sin. Even the rest of the earth is subjected to their sin. So now when they go out, instead of the earth willingly giving up fruit, willingly growing what they need, now they're going to have to toil and work very hard. And it's only going to be by the sweat of their brow that they make anything grow. Or if they were like me, they can't make anything grow at all, and it will all just die. We got some gardeners in here. Y'all can make something out of nothing. Y'all can grow stuff out of nothing. I can kill. You could give me the perfect setup, and I would kill it all. It's just, I can't keep stuff alive. Adam and Eve, though, they had to go out and they had to work the earth and toil because even the earth felt the consequences of their sin. And it's been the same ever since. Even the earth feels the consequences of our sin. The pain that we put the earth through is a consequence of our own sin and disobedience to God. 
And so Paul can go on and say, the creation eagerly awaits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. Remember, I told you that back in the Garden of Eden, God gave Adam and Eve one job to spread the garden throughout the earth, to cultivate the earth, to make it a beautiful garden of Eden, the entire world. But they failed. They disobeyed God and they failed in their mandate. They failed in what they were doing. So now Paul says the creation awaits the revealing of the sons of God, the children of God, the people who are going to be redeemed by Jesus to take up the charge of Adam and Eve and to go and to bring redemption to the world, redemption to the earth itself. You see, the the very earth wants people to be saved. It wants people to know Jesus. It wants people to be redeemed by Jesus because it recognizes that the original mission that God gave to humanity can only be fulfilled by people who are filled with the Spirit of God. That's the only way that we can get back to the Garden of Eden that was original for the world. And so he's saying that this creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, the earth didn't want to be broken by our sin, but it was subjected to futility by both human sin and God's curse. Because humans disobeyed God, they said no, they didn't follow and and obey their God, they didn't live out the mission that God had given them, and so God cursed humanity. But because humanity had been put on earth to rule over the earth, when God cursed humanity, the earth was cursed as well. And so the creation longs for the redemption of God's people. The creation longs for its resurrection. The creation longs to be renewed. And he says, up till now, the whole creation has been groaning with labor pains. What's the now he's talking about? What would he say? Up till now, the late creation has been groaning with labor pains. The now that he's talking about is the resurrection of Jesus and the birth of the church. When the very earth senses, when the earth knows that God's people walk upon it, when the earth knows that Jesus has come, its king has come, its redemption is near, the church is born, it knows that it too will be restored. This is why, as a church, creation care is at the center of what we do as well. We've got to care for our world. We've got to care for our creation. It's part of our mandate because it was part of the mandate to the original human beings. And the Apostle Paul right here is saying, when the earth knows that the church is a thing, when the earth knows that Jesus, its king, has come, it knows that that mandate, that mission that God gave the original people, is renewed in the church. The creation care is essential to what we do. We ought to be the best gardeners in the world. We ought to be the greenest people in the world. Not because the rest of the world tells us to, not because the culture tells us to, but because we recognize that human sinfulness is what has caused the damage to the earth and that part of our redemption is redeeming the world, respecting creation, respecting the earth. That's part of who we are. Because it's part of God's plan for redemption. He plans to redeem the world, to redeem the earth. And when Jesus comes, even the earth knows 
that its redemption is at hand. And so Paul moves on. He, he, he starts there. He starts with the earth. He wants to reiterate to these Roman Christians that, hey, it's not just you who's suffering. In fact, human sin has broken everything down to the level that even the ground beneath your feet hurts because of human sinfulness. Even the creation around you hurts because of human sinfulness. But then he, he switches back to them. He brings it back and he says, the creation is groaning. But not only that, we ourselves who have the spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Now that's, that's a whole host of things to unpack there. But Paul, Paul switches the gears now. He's moved now from creation, the creation that's been broken by human sin, back to us. And he's saying to you believers, to you followers of Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit living within you as kind of a down payment for what is to come. You have the Spirit of God living within you, bringing you new life, empowering you to care for the earth that longs for redemption. And that Spirit within you is what causes you yourself to groan. You groan in labor pain. You groan in the desire for resurrection. You groan in the desire for redemption. The whole world is groaning for Jesus. C.S. Lewis, again, put it this way, that if I find in myself a desire that this world cannot satisfy, it's because I was made for another world. Every human being on earth is groaning for something that the world can't give them. Even the earth is groaning for something that we can't give it. We can't live in this world in a way that is purely and perfectly respectful of the creation and brings it back to its full redemption. All we can do is mitigate the damage that's been done. But we ourselves can't bring it back to Eden. We can't bring it back to the place that it was before we broke it. All we can do is mitigate the damage. And, and the same thing is true right now of, of sinful relationships, of broken relationships, and of, of the pains that we feel in our body. All we can really do is mitigate the damage that's been done. Science has brought us a long way in treating the human body, but it can't make us immortal. It can't fix everything that's wrong with us. Some of the people in this room have diagnoses that will never be cured. I myself am one of those people. And I have a disease that will never, on this side of the earth of heaven, be healed, be cured. Apart from divine intervention, apart from God healing me himself, science won't heal my disease. Some of you are walking in that same boat. All we can do in the meantime is mitigate the damage that's been done by our sin. All we can do in the meantime is mitigate the damage that's done to our bodies and to the world and to our relationships. We seek wholeness. We seek healing. And we follow Jesus because we believe that he is the source of healing. He's the source of redemption. He's the source of resurrection. But until the day he comes again, we will be fighting an uphill battle. Until the day that Jesus comes again and remakes this whole world, until the day that he comes again and wipes sin off the face of the earth and redeems and restores and resurrects everybody and everything, until that day, we are fighting a battle we cannot win on our own. And so we groan for redemption. We groan for resurrection. Some of us literally groan just getting off the couch because age is wearing on our bodies. And we're not going to magically be healed of that. 
We will walk on this earth until we die. And yet every one of us knows that death is not what was supposed to be. Every one of us knows that sickness is not what was supposed to be. Every one of us knows that mental illness was not the way it was meant to be. That broken relationships is not the way it was meant to be. We live in a world that falls short in every possible way of what we truly desire and want. And yet what we truly desire and want is not possible in this life. Only one person can bring it. Only one person can fulfill our hopes, fulfill our dreams. Only one person can truly bring the restoration and the resurrection that we so desperately long for, that the earth itself desperately longs for. And his name is Jesus. And what we long for now in all of our brokenness, what we long for now is for him to come to make all things right. You see, apart from Jesus, the only philosophy that makes sense is nihilism. Apart from Jesus, the only philosophy that makes sense is that we're all just going to die and it's a great big ball of nothing and there's no point to anything. And I realize that sounds insulting to every other religion and philosophy in the world, but if we believe in the God who truly exists, who came to earth as Jesus Christ, the God who has proven over and over again his power to resurrect and redeem and bring wholeness, then there can be no other philosophy or way to the life that he gives. Jesus is the only source of our redemption. He's the only source of our resurrection. He's the only way that we have to the world that we dream of, to the world that we desperately desire, that we groan for in our innermost being, that we hope for, as the apostle here puts it. And so that's what he points us to. He says, we're we're groaning for this redemption. We're eagerly awaiting adoption, the redemption of our bodies. And what he means by that is the time when Jesus will return and truly make all things right. Where we're no longer in this in-between space where we've got God's spirit living in us. Jesus has come once to redeem us, but we're still fighting against the effects of sin. He says, we're eagerly awaiting the redemption that comes when Jesus brings us full healing and resurrection. And now, in this hope, we were saved. But hope that is seen is not hope, because who hopes for what he sees? Now, if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. And this is the apostle coming around to this place to say, we're not going to see in this life, we're not going to see in the here and now the desire of our hearts. We're not going to see the hope that we have. We're not going to see the full resurrection that Jesus can bring. We pursue it, we seek it, we groan for it, we long for it. But until Jesus comes, we won't see it fully. That's why it's hope. Now, when Paul uses the word hope here, he's using it in a way that we are very unfamiliar with. For us, in the Western world, for us in an American context, we we say the word hope and it's this weak little thing. Well, I sure hope it doesn't rain tomorrow, even though the forecast says it's an 80% chance. Or I sure hope 
that I get that bonus. I sure hope that this thing happens. And what we mean is a kind of wishful thinking. What we mean is that, well, well, I, I mean, maybe it will, maybe it won't. It'd be good if it did, but maybe it won't. Biblical hope is not like that at all. Biblical hope is not wishful thinking. It's not a maybe it will, maybe it won't kind of thing. Biblical hope is a confident expectation in the future that our God has promised. Biblical hope is a I know this is going to happen because I trust the words of my good and trustworthy God. I hold tight to it. I hold fast to it. And the biblical hope of redemption is built on the solid promise of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When God says to you, I will restore you, I will resurrect you, I will give you a new body, he doesn't just say that in a vacuum, he doesn't say that in a void, he points us to the resurrected Jesus Christ. He points us to Jesus who came back from the dead in a resurrected body, fully restored, fully redeemed. Our hope in a resurrection is rooted firmly, not only in the words of our God, but in the demonstration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But Jesus doesn't get to the resurrection without first coming through a manger. The whole earth was groaning for redemption until the night that that baby was born. The whole earth is groaning for redemption in labor pains until the Messiah is birthed, until Jesus comes onto the scene in a little house in Bethlehem, surrounded by livestock and loud family members, and all the brokenness of this world, the light came. The light of our redemption. The light of our hope. And he lived, and he died upon that cross to take our sin so that we could know the hope that he has to give so that we could know the hope of the the resurrection that was demonstrated when Jesus walked out of a tomb on the third day. That's the hope that we hold to. It's not an empty promise. It's not words spoken in a vacuum. It's not just words on a page in an old archaic book. It's not just a superstition. It's a historical reality, the resurrection of Jesus, in which we anchor our hope and we look to the redemption of our bodies and of our world. That's the hope we point to. That's the hope we have to offer to absolutely everybody. If you find within yourself a longing that cannot be fulfilled by this world, it's because you were made for a better one. It's because you were made for heaven. You were made for a perfect world in which bodies don't break down and relationships don't break down. You were made for a world in which cancer doesn't exist, in which mental illness doesn't exist. You were made for a world where you could run that marathon. You 
are made for a world that's better. And the promise of our God is that that world is coming. And when it does, it will make all of the pain, all the struggle, all the toil, all the suffering of this world seem like nothing. In fact, heaven will work backward to redeem even the worst of our present sufferings, our present circumstances. That's the hope we live into. That's the hope that's on offer to you this Advent season. That's the hope we look forward to on Christmas and at Easter. And that's the hope that I hope you can grasp today. Jesus offers you new life. He offers you a resurrection hope rooted in his own resurrection, a promise of restoration, of release, of joy, of fulfillment, a future of nothing but good that will overcome whatever we struggle with in the here and now. Hold fast to the hope of Jesus. Pray to him. Look to him. Seek him for the redemption that he can bring. Let's pray. Good God, who has promised us resurrection through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who promises us new life. Jesus, who gives us purpose and meaning and light. God, who has promised us full restoration. God, I pray that you would give us the perseverance that we need in the here and now to struggle against the pains of the world, to fight against the ways that our sin has broken our relationships and the earth itself. I pray, Father, that you would give us the power through your Holy Spirit to seek the hope of Jesus Christ, to put all of our hope in you, whose promises are sure and strong, who is trustworthy who loves us more than we could ever imagine. God, give us a new hope today and birth within us a hope during this Advent season, even as you were born into a manger so many years ago, to lead us, to teach us, to show us what it is to live a God-honoring, holy life, and ultimately, Lord, to die our death upon a traitor's cross so that we could share in your resurrection and the solid hope that it gives for an earth and a people who groan for redemption. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast this week. For more information on Christ Community Church in Southeast Denver, visit ChristCommunityDenver.org.